coronavirus pandemic shook us all from our comfort zones with fundamental changes in the way we all lived and worked. We saw a mass shift to working from home, the rapid adoption of some new technologies and the acceleration of other existing technological trends, all in a crisis situation. Many of us worked in ways we'd never experienced before and certainly in ways we had never expected. So what did we learn about what the future of work will look like? Where will we work? How will we work? Will technology completely dominate the future? Will robots take our jobs? I'm your host, David Lee, and welcome to Future Work, a podcast series brought to you by The Scotsman in partnership with Skills Development Scotland's dedicated digital skills and careers website, Digital World. Visit digitalworld.net to become a digital human and fast forward your professional future. During this six-part series, we'll peer into our crystal ball, possibly one powered by artificial intelligence, and examine what the future might look like. I'll be talking to a range of experts and industry leaders about future work and ask them what picture that creates in their head. I put that question to Claire Gillespie, who leads on digital technologies for Skills Development Scotland. For me, we're seeing one element of what it might look like just now. I think driven by the pandemic, we're seeing a lot of us working remotely and much more flexibly. And I think the days of people going into an office, for example, this whole nine to five in in the city centre, it's very much gone. I think it was starting to go anyway. And I think we're seeing much more flexible work practices um, for for recent years. And people are talking about a working from home culture. And actually, the term I'm hearing a lot now is about location-free working. So actually, it doesn't really matter where you are. You don't need to be at your own, own home. But I think our working environment will look really different. So I think we won't, offices won't look the same and, and, and even home offices won't look the same. But I think it's kind of the tip of the iceberg. I think there's masses more to happen here. And I think some of the collaboration tools that we use in our everyday work just now is kind of quite basic. And actually I'd look to areas like the kind of gaming industry. If we look at how gamers communicate online, there's some amazing platforms and some amazing technologies that they're using. So I think um, a lot we were doing things and, and working is a little bit clunky just now. And actually, I think we can harness technology much, much better. And I do wonder if maybe we start seeing, you know, augmented reality and virtual reality and having our colleagues as holograms and, and avatars streamed into our, our home offices. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure that's the, the future of, of, of tomorrow, but maybe it's a future of a few years down the line. Professor Heather McGregor, Executive Dean of Edinburgh Business School at Heriot Watt University, agrees the future of work will look very different to what we have previously known. I think the future of work will be one that is unbelievably flexible. So people will work in different ways, in different places. The most important thing to say is that it won't be one continual line of employment from when you leave your full-time education in your early 20s until you start drawing your pension. And, and that's the biggest difference, I think, to how people think of work now. But what are the skills that will be needed in the future workplace? Claire Gillespie says they are constantly evolving, but that technology will inevitably play a central role. Many jobs will become digital jobs. In fact, almost every job, I think, will have a digital element to it. And we need to blend digital into absolutely every, every discipline. Um, and I think we need to do that from early years to university and into employability programmes. 
and in that way we try to ensure that everyone can read and write. I think we have to ensure everyone has a really strong digital capability and is digitally literate. And this kind of balance of kind of basic digital skills, I suppose something I think is really important is basic digital skills have evolved and become much more sophisticated. I don't think employers just want you to turn on a, a laptop and, and send an email. They want you to understand how to do a little bit of cyber um, resilience, how to do a little bit of coding, for example, how to understand data. And these are really, really important skills I think we need to blend into everyone from a very, very young age. And I think if we start to do that, we start to future-proof the economy and make sure we have masses of individuals coming through with, with digital skills. And it also becomes easier then to move people into technology pathways and develop some of those technology professionals because from day one, you're learning some basic digital skills. So it's not rocket science to think you might become a technology professional at a later stage. And we have to get across to people about the quality of these technology jobs. And, and the diversity of these jobs as well. So I think we all know what a doctor does and how much a doctor might earn. But I think if you'd ask somebody what an ethical hacker does and earns or what a you know, software developer does or earns, then I think that's a, a little bit um, less known. So I think it's really important that to get this pipeline of technology talent and those technology professionals, we need to be communicating some of these messages. Rob Huggins of MBN Solutions recruits individuals for specialist technology jobs. He knows that tech will sit at the epicentre of the future workplace, but with an estimated 13,000 tech jobs always waiting to be filled in Scotland, he is concerned about how we will find the people for all of those vacancies. I think technology skills are imperative, critical, crucial. But the assertion that there are more jobs out there than people to fill is 100% true. There are way more jobs out there than we have people to fill. And how do we address that? We address it in the long term by placing technology skills at the heart of our education system from nursery age to um, high school age. I believe that technology should be taught with the same degree of uh, time, seriousness and attention as maths and English. And in the short term, um, there is no easy fix. I think there are there are a number of laudable initiatives out there. Data Lab, MSc Placement Programmes, one. The organisation organization I work for, their MSc Academy Programme, is another. There are, there are short-term fixes out there, but there is no short-term solution. There is only a long-term solution, and it begins with a serious change in direction in the way we educate children. So what kind of jobs does the economy need most at the moment and which ones are hardest to fill? So right now we are seeing a huge demand for roles that are they're broadly classed as data engineering, cloud engineering and DevOps. It's, it's anything that allows organisations to scale and improve processes, particularly in the cloud. Huge demand for data engineering on the back of the huge demand for data science skills five to 10 years ago. And a simplistic way of thinking about it is that, that the five to 10 year ago demand for data science was all about testing to see if things could be done. Now we know those things can be done. The huge demand in data engineering is to get those things into production at scale and to improve processes. So we're seeing massive demand for these particular roles right now in Scotland, we're seeing an equal demand elsewhere UK. Our business is done 
primarily Scotland and London. There's a demand for all of these skills everywhere we look. Gillian Doherty, Chief Executive of the Data Lab Innovation Centre based in Edinburgh, agrees these deep tech skills are needed, but stresses that technology skills will be required at all levels of the economy. Certainly at the Data Lab, we've been looking at it from a data lens. What are the kind of range of skills and capabilities and almost, you know, looking at what do you need to be a data citizen? What do you need to be a data worker? And what do you need to be a data professional? And they're three quite different things. And I think technology pretty much follows the same thing. You know, we are kind of all technology citizens. We use technology in our day-to-day life to a greater or lesser extent. Um, and then there are those who, who work with technology. So they might be doing a, a different job, project management. They might be a lawyer. They might be um, a doctor. But actually, technology enables them to do their job. And then you have the professionals who are almost the developers, the the people who are deep in terms of their awareness and knowledge and use of technology to uh, and as part of their work. So I think you've got those three really interesting kind of levels from citizen through worker to professional. And I think that that's what makes it quite interesting because some roles, actually just being a, a technology citizen, as it were, is sufficient. Uh, and others, absolutely, you need to be um, a professional with significant skills and experience. Claire Gillespie thinks Scotland and its universities are doing well at teaching those deep tech skills. I think in Scotland we've got some really good offers um, coming through the education system and some real areas of, of expertise. If we look at some of the universities, for example, we have in, in Napier University and also in Abertee um, University, they're accredited national cybersecurity centres of excellence. So they're very much focused on, on a particular part of, of, of the tech pipeline. And they're doing amazing work to um, develop that talent, but also work with employers to retain that talent in Scotland. And actually what we're seeing is some really interesting startups and spin-outs coming out of the university institutions as well. And that's really important. What we need to do is not just develop the talent, but have a, a range of um, interesting, exciting career opportunities for those individuals to work in once they, they graduate. There's also a really good activity around fintech, for example, Strathclyde University. I've got a master's in, in, in fintech recently launched. And I have to commend the work I've done in Edinburgh and the South East City Deal about making um, that part of the country a, you know, a sort of data capital of, of Scotland, if not a data capital of, of Europe. So we have got some amazing expertise in the education system in Scotland. And I think we need to shout about that more. Um, and I think employers are certainly very well aware of it. Um, but we need to promote to students the vibrancy um, of tech companies. And, and we need to make sure people want to stay in Scotland. But does she think the skills system is fast moving enough to tackle the changing needs of our future economy? But actually, I, I think the education system is quite agile. I think, as I mentioned, we've got a lot of education around cybersecurity, around data, around fintech, for example. And I think that's a real illustration of how institutions are working with their employer networks. Most universities and colleges have their own employer advisory boards and they're using that insight to shape the curriculum. And also working closely with employers, um, ourselves at Skills Development Scotland, we've got a number of projects where we take employers into the, you know, the school classroom or into the college or, or university environment. And we use employers to teach and inspire those students. Um, and that's really important because they can inspire them in a different way to our educators can, but they can also bring in real life examples of what's just around the corner or what really exciting innovation is as part of that tech company today. How has the education system itself adopted to the challenges of the pandemic? and made sure it is not just educating, but inspiring. Claire Gillespie again. 
So I think what's happened during COVID is a kind of emergency situation for, for all the reasons we understand. But I think what we need to do is create really good quality, inspirational online content and recreate some of those things you get in a classroom environment, which maybe you're not getting in an online environment just now. There was a partnership announced at BT and North Lanarkshire Council who have created um, an, an immersive classroom environment. We are using sort of, um, you know, the classroom and, and the four walls have a augmented reality um, streamed onto them. And, and the kids are, you know, teleported into a, a space environment or underwater environment. And I think we'll see more of that, maybe not in the short term, but I think that's the ambition of the education system. And, and it covers lots of challenges, the geographical challenges, and not everyone can get to, a, you know, a, a particular institution. And, and I think by using more technology, but using good technology and interesting platforms, we have a an opportunity to make a real difference to the Scottish economy and, and overcome some of those geographical and, and other disadvantaged barriers that people will experience. Heather McGregor believes Scotland is ahead of the game in terms of online learning, but that there is much more to be done. She says huge progress has been made during the pandemic. I, I think it's been a phenomenal development. I mean, one of the things about crisis, of course, is that it forces change. And the, the depth of the crisis forces the pace of the change. We have absolutely pivoted. I mean, I obviously work in higher education where we had no choice but to suddenly become completely digital overnight. And then you suddenly have to train thousands of colleagues to be able to cope with that. And, and then you're battling with the infrastructure. So, you know, if you want to teach online, I can tell you, you need jolly good upload speeds. People, people who are streaming Netflix, all they're worried about is download speeds. When you, when you come to um, delivering stuff online academically, upload speed is much more important. It, we also got to be careful that we don't um, leave people behind in this. The thing about change is that it is quite divisive. You know, there is a whole group of people who have sped up and, and then there's another group of people that have slowed down. So we've got to be careful that we do not leave people behind in this. So a year ago, I was toasting the immortal memory at the Burns Night Dinner at the Caledonian Club in London. And afterwards, uh, somebody came up to me and said, there were 300 people there, all lived in London, all Scots. He came up to me and said that he was really pleased to meet me because Harriet Watt University, which is where I work, had been really instrumental in, in his career development. So I asked him what he did. He said he was a, a very successful eye surgeon. I said, we don't have a medical school. So I asked him how it could be that we had anything to do with his career at Gosley because he went to Cambridge. And he explained to me that the scholar program, which is housed at Harriet Watt, um, which the government funds, which allows science teaching to go digitally into every school in Scotland, allowed him in a very remote part of Scotland to study science for his hires. And if he hadn't been able to do that, he would never be able to go to Cambridge to do medicine. So we already had in Scotland digital leadership in education because through this program at Scholar, uh, as I said, which is, a, you know, it's a joint program with the government um, and, and with education in Scotland. And that is the kind of thing I think that we need to do to level up. We need to continue to provide infrastructure and training to the more remote parts of Scotland. Claire Gillespie also wants to see more young people inspired by using technology in a very practical and relevant way. You know, a big part of what we have to do with young people and, and older career changers, we have to teach them technology skills, but we have to inspire them about technology. Technology can be transformational. I think we can see that. 
you know, the impact and, and actually we've got a project we run in partnership with our, our colleagues in, in um, Edinburgh around data called Save the Rhino, where it's essentially a data skills project for young people in schools, but it's premised around the idea of saving the rhino, you know, that kind of environmental, that climate change challenge that drives so many young people um, and are very passionate about it. And I think we need to do more and more of those experiences. So for me, technology is kind of secondary. It's what the technology can do and the impact it can have. And actually, again, that's where we overcome some of our diversity challenges. Young girls typically want to make a difference and maybe don't want to use tech just for tech's sake. So how do we package it in different ways to get across that technology can be an opportunity for everyone in Scotland? Diversity really matters to Heather McGregor too. So I think the way that we need we make things more diverse is not to complain about the the number of diverse people on boards or at CEOs. But the thing to do is fix the problem going in, and that's the thing is about leveling the playing field. And people think when you level the playing field that you're trying to give everybody the same opportunity. Um, actually, to give everybody the same opportunity, you need to help different people in different ways. So I, I prefer to see very specific, bespoke intervention to different groups of people. Just right now, for instance, we're running um, an MBA program in a refugee camp in Lebanon. You know, this is the first time that anyone's done this anywhere in the world. And that's because refugee camps now are ecosystems with loads of businesses. You know, every refugee camp will have a mobile phone shop and also them, even probably a wedding dress shop. And the average time that people spend in these camps is now years and years and years. It's not, you know, a few months. It's, you know, some people spend 17 years in a refugee camp. We are doing that almost to level up that playing field so that those people have probably more of an option of getting out of there and, and getting qualified and getting uh, new jobs. So that's a very bespoke intervention. I think that if we're going to see more of a leveling up, we need more serious intervention but done in a, in a bespoke way, not just as a general way. As well as building a more diverse future workforce, are we making the best of people in our existing teams, especially those who are maybe not interested in technology or even a bit scared by it? Heather McGregor thinks we're getting better, but there's a long way to go. Well, we've been doing a lot of upskilling uh, in the pandemic and uh, supported by the Scottish Government, of course, and and I think it's true that the, the bigger employers have worked out that you know, staff turnover is very expensive. So they have worked out it would be much better to upskill their existing workforce than look outside. The, the real cost you know, is, is staff churn. So every time you recruit somebody, you know, it, it costs. I don't just mean the, the money you pay any recruiter or the LinkedIn subscription you pay or whatever. I mean the cost of having to onboard those people, to have the, the learning curve before that they fully deliver. So I see we, we will see that even more in the future because people you know, want people who are very productive and who they, they can trust to deliver. And so they prefer to hire, to develop their own people. I think it's harder though for SMEs. And what you've got to remember is that there's, you know, what, 350,000 SMEs in Scotland, something like that. And that's really difficult because they typically don't have the margins that allow for development and they don't have the number of people to pick from. What we need to do is to somehow work with smaller companies to help them to identify and to train talent. Claire Gillespie also believes it's about making technology normal in all sorts of jobs. For me, normalising technology is massively important because it becomes everyone's responsibility and everyone's job. 
And I think traditionally we've thought of the computing scientists who are, are the people who code and, and do all the techie stuff and they work in a silo. And that just isn't the way industry works. And actually the digital opportunity is for absolutely everybody. And I think it's really interesting that the data work that Borders College, for example, is doing is taking it into hairdressing, taking it into joinery, taking it into land-based industries. The connected cow, for example, I think is a term I've heard where we have cows that are, have a sensor in them and the farmer can track where they are and, and track their health. And there's examples of, you know, RFD um, scanners being used in fish farms, for example, and autonomous tractors. Um, and that's where I think we can start to see the real value of data and technology skills across a range of disciplines. For me, technology is no longer optional. If we don't all get involved in technology, then we're going to lose the opportunity to have really high quality jobs. Claire Gillespie thinks we're starting to understand the mixture of technological and human skills that will be needed in the future workplace. So I think there's kind of two packages. So for me, and obviously I declare a bias here, but I think technology skills are, are massively important. And for me, it's those kind of more sophisticated core skills. So I think everyone has to understand a little bit of data, a little bit of cybersecurity, um, and even a little bit of coding. There's some excellent work in our primary schools even to teach young kids at primary level to, to code using a, a sort of programme called Scratch. And I think that's really important to develop these skills really young and for everybody. Not because I think everyone's going to become a coder, but I think it's a skill you may use and work at a later stage. And when you're looking at those blended jobs, so the people who work in digital marketing, for example, or people who work in digital healthcare, having been introduced to these skills on an ongoing basis means it much better and easier for you to access these opportunities. So I think we need to package digital economy skills in a slightly different way and make them accessible to everybody. But what goes alongside that is what SDS would call the meta skills and, and those kind of softer skills. And those are the skills that make us human. Skills around um, curiosity, for example, and, and problem solving and collaboration. And these skills are massively important to technology employers. A lot of people talk about robots taking our jobs and automation taking over the world. And, and that's a, you know, a different question. But part of the reason why I don't think that will happen in its entirety is because we need human skills. We need people who can be, have empathy, who can have emotional intelligence even things like storytelling. So when I speak to employers who hire data scientists and data analysts, that whole idea of being able to bring data to life and, and communicate a story and understand the business benefit is massively important. And, and some of the businesses, I think, that combine this sort of collective intelligence of, of tech and human are the businesses who probably do the best, drive the best innovation and, and have the best results. Heather McGregor reinforces the need for human skills, which she describes in a slightly different way. Well, the, the important thing is the amount of personal capital that we have. So people think of capital as something that is a store of wealth, to quote Adam Smith. But actually, it's a, it, it's a store, you know, your personal capital are the things you bring to an employer and the things that you use to navigate yourself through the world of work. And, and that is your skills, first of all, that's what people think of immediately, you know, okay. Capital is something you invest in and you get a return from. So people invest in their skills and development and their training. They invest their time, they invest their money. Their employers invest their time and money. But they also need social capital, which is the value of connections. And you know, people think that connections are just, um, and your network is just something you acquire as you go through life. I would put it to you that social capital is something you need to invest in. So you, just as you need to set aside time to develop skills and training, you also need to set aside time 
and effort to put into building connections. As well as this personal capital, Heather McGregor believes high-level technology skills are also crucial to our future economy. The harder thing is, as you say, is the very high-end stuff that we want. We've got some of the best software development companies in the world with bits of their organisation in Scotland, and they are always looking for people. So what I think we need to do there is we need to have bigger and better computer science departments that, you know, encourage people to study in Scotland. This is why Silicon Valley started up so well. It wasn't because everybody decided to go and live in California. It was because there were really good training there at the universities there in and around San Francisco. And so they had a natural group of postgraduate students who were able to code that was a ready workforce. And um, they come and they want to stay here. So Scotland attracts international students to do computer science. Um, and, and what we want them to do is come here and stay here. And Rob Huggins echoes this idea of talent magnets. There are a lot of organisations who are now taking selection very, very seriously because they have to. If it's hard to find these individuals, then the organisations that make sure that their selection process is uh, best in class are more likely to find these individuals. So there are some amazing examples out there of where some sensible joined up thinking has led to selection processes which have moved very much towards the idea of if we are assessing you for your skills in this role, we will use tasks that reflect this role. But unfortunately, I still do see quite a lot of um, what I would call perhaps thinking that's not moved with the times would be the best way of putting it. It's thinking that's perhaps a little bit entrenched in in, in a previous iteration um, where this conversational piece is the be-all and end-all for individuals whose work does not involve conversation pieces primarily. Now, if a conversation piece is part of the job, of course assess it that way. But to me, it just seems a little bit contradictory to make that the major way of determining someone's suitability. You know, if they're going to be a podcast host or a radio DJ, of course you're going to get them talking forever after hour to make sure they're good at it. But if they're going to be a programmer or a coder, some kind of data expert, some kind of cyber expert, why is the method of assessing their suitability a verbal one-to-one -one conversation? It should be a practical task, a group task, some kind of demonstration, problem-solving exercise, something that really accurately mirrors or reflects the task that they will do in employment. I think the challenge at the moment is um, signposting directions for people. So if we look at, for example, people who have been made redundant as a consequence of the pandemic, um, yes, they could potentially cross-train, but I think the challenge we have at the moment as an industry is signposting where people go to be cross-trained, how that cross-training will be delivered, the medium or forum in which it will be delivered, how it can be accessed in terms of funding. Um, there are very uh, well-recognised organisations out there who provide this kind of cross-training, but only if you have a large sum of money to pay them. Now, somebody who's perhaps just lost their job as a consequence of COVID it's unlikely to have thousands of pounds that they can reinvest in cross-training. From an organisational perspective, the answer to this could be within the organisation itself. Cross-training of individuals is a methodology that I've seen be operated 
very successfully by a number of organizations, they tend to be some of the more uh, enlightened, advanced, and evolved organizations when it comes to talent. The use of the human resource within those organizations is at a very advanced stage. Not all organizations are like that, but as a general view of the technology marketplace, I believe that there needs to be a lot more signposting. If if this perfect world of you've lost your job as X will cross-train you into Y is going to happen, then I think there needs to be an awful lot more signposting. And that signposting needs to be done by industry rather than by, by government or public sector authorities. Gillian Doherty agrees that signposting and awareness raising is vital to get a wider range of people into technology-based jobs that will make them sought after in the future workplace. The first thing is is to show them what's possible. So it's a great saying, you know, if you can't see it, you can't be it. So more visible awareness, um, more understanding of what actually the opportunities are and what a day in the life is like for someone that works in the industry. Uh, and then also signposting them to the areas that they can get help, whether that's um, Code Clan, for example, and the work, the amazing work they do. Uh, our college sector and our universities are um, introducing much more kind of short courses, retraining type content. There's a lot more online now than there ever was. So it's a, there's a lot more flexibility than maybe previously to retrain. that Actually, you can do it part time in and around other work uh, that maybe didn't exist before. Um, but I guess the first thing is 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 actually showing what's possible, because if you can see a, a pathway for you into those types of roles and you think, actually, I might, might like that, how do you find out about it? How do you speak to other people that are doing it already? Um, how do you hear from potentially role models that you might aspire to? And then how do you get the path and, and support to, to get there? So the future of work is full of exciting and different opportunities. But people need to be well informed that those opportunities are actually out there. Human skills will still be vital, but we will all need a level of technological ability, whatever field we work in. It's hard to summarise exactly what the future of work and the jobs we will do will look like, but Rob Huggins has an idea where those jobs are coming from. I think that what we're going to see in the 21st century is technology being used to solve a lot of the problems that we created in the 20th century. I hope that's whetted your appetite to hear much more about future work. Please rate the podcast and subscribe to the series, which is available on all the main podcast platforms. Listen out for our next episode about how future work will transform town and city centres across Scotland. Future work is brought to you by The Scotsman in partnership with Skills Development Scotland's dedicated digital skills and careers website, Digital World. Visit digitalworld.net to become a digital human and fast forward your professional future. Future Work is presented by me, David Lee, and it's produced by Morvan McIntyre.